Black excellence is finding, appreciating, and respecting the excellence within yourself and sharing it with other Black people so that it's a, it's a light that can be passed on from person to person, generation to generation, until we are an entire race of excellence, Black excellence. Welcome to the Dripping in Black podcast, where we celebrate Black excellence throughout the Black diaspora. Here's your host, David V. Lewis. What's up, good people all across the world? This is the Dripping in Black podcast. I am your host, David V. Lewis. And per usual, we have another fantastic guest. Today's guest is the Honorable Marilyn E. Atkins. Marilyn, say hello to the world. Hello, world. Glad to be here. Yeah, I am truly honored and excited about this episode. We have uh, someone who has a dynamic story, dynamic history, and I just can't wait to to be a part of her chronicling her history and sharing it with the world. But we always begin in our traditional fashion with asking the simple but somewhat complex question, somewhat loaded question of who is our guest. So who is Marilyn Atkins? Marilyn Atkins that's me, is a Black woman who believes in sharing all of the experiences, both good and bad, with other people to show them that whatever I overcame, they can overcome as well. I'm interested in Black people being the very best that they can be. Hmm. Yes, yes, yes. and. We are interested in showcasing Black people at their very best. And so, again, we are just thrilled to have you on. There's so, so many places to begin with your story, but I would like to know, tell the audience where you're originally from. Well, I was born in Detroit, Mm -hmm. and I was born of an Italian, young Italian girl who had a Black boyfriend who nobody knew about. And she got pregnant, and I'm the result of that. Uh, The Italian side of the family said she could not bring me home, so I was placed in foster care here in Detroit, and I was adopted by an African-American family, a couple in Saginaw, Michigan. Mm -hmm. So I was taken to Saginaw where I was raised. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... In Saginaw, you're born, you're raised by this adopted family. Uh, You spend your formative years there. Do you navigate through the public school system up there as well? The Catholic school system. They were Catholics. I had a Catholic education. Okay, wow. An undergraduate at Saginaw Valley State University, law school in Detroit. We moved back to, well, we moved to Detroit. Uh, the Detroit area in 74 so I could go to law school and uh, been here except for seven years outside of Lansing for a job with the Attorney General and Governor Blanchard. I'm back in my 
the city of my birth and here I'm going mm -hmm. to stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there's an interesting story, part of your story in which you meet your husband, right? How old were you when you met your husband? Oh, I was 15 when mm -hmm. I met my husband. I was the organist in the Catholic church where he was the assistant pastor. Okay. All right. So you're 15 and he is. <laughs> uh, 25 years older than me. <laughs> okay. And so you all meet, did y'all hit it off immediately or does it take a little time? No, he was my boss. I mean, he was, uh, no, I, I had a conversation with him when I was 19, mm -hmm. uh, from 15 to 19, he told me what masses to play, what hymns to play, and he gave me my paycheck. He was Father Atkins to me for four okay. years. Okay. So at 19 wow. is when we had the conversation. Okay. 19, you have a conversation. And from that conversation, what did we get? Well, I wanted, it was, it's called in the Catholic Church, it's called an open confession, uh, where I sit across from the priest and I tell my sins and get absolution. And when mm -hmm. I finished, he said, may I talk to you? And mm -hmm. I said, sure. And he divulged to me that he was con seriously considering leaving the priesthood. I asked why. And he said, I want to get married and have a family of my own. I have been a priest 15 years at my parents' insistence. And I, if I don't leave now, I, I'll never get the chance. And I set on a mission David, to make him change his mind and not leave. Mm, okay. Well, that didn't work, obviously. <laughs> since, since my last name is Atkins, that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he was insisting upon pursuing this relationship with you, and he couldn't have it both ways in that day and age. He still can't. Uh, priests, Catholic priests cannot get married. Okay. Um, unless they get permission from the Pope to be what's called laicized. And that permission comes through their bishop and the Bishop of Saginaw. This is all in Saginaw. And the Bishop mm. of Saginaw would not uh, intercede for any priest to leave the priesthood. Mm. Wow. <laughs> now, is this your first boyfriend? No, I had a, I had an African-American boyfriend before my husband. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, let, let me just say that Father Atkins, Thomas Lee Atkins was white. He was 45. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was 20 when we got married. Mm -hmm. So he's 25 years older than me and he's white and he's an ex-priest. So mm. that was kind of a lot on our plates. Yeah. And then at 20, you're in college at this time as well? I was. I was uh -huh. in college, yes. Mm -hmm. um, but I, um, I, you know, I, it, it, it's all in my book, so I, I'm not really shy about saying, uh, uh, you know, priests are celibate. And so mm -hmm. he never had any experience. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I, I agreed after a while, yes, I want to marry. He was a very peaceful man. 
And my mm -hmm. growing up with my adopted mother was absolutely horrendous. Mm -hmm. And this man was peaceful. And I said, I can do this. I can do mm -hmm. this. And we're talking about 1965. And mm -hmm. we married in 1966. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, so we had the experience um, at, at his ins insistence because he had never experienced a woman and so mm. uh as a result i was with child can i say so mm -hmm. and my my oldest daughter elizabeth ann said at nine years old she figured that out so <laughs> uh but it was and then a year later i had my daughter catherine and okay. let me just say, he was a wonderful husband and father and a, a very spiritual man. And um, he put the priesthood behind him and became a husband and a father for 24 mm -hmm. years. And then he died of kidney failure in 1990. Yeah. And so I'm trying to get the timeline here. So now at 20, you're married. Uh, at some point you're in school. At this time, are you in school for law? I was not in school. We married in 66. I mm -hmm. was not in school because I had a, a, a child in 67 and a child in 68. So yeah. I had to work and he worked for the state of Michigan and, and, and I worked for a bank. And, uh, you know, it was going fine. We're living in Saginaw. And um, in 1971, I have two little children. And I look up. It's a Sunday Sunday morning. He's reading the paper. And my two daughters, our two daughters are playing on the floor. And all of a sudden, I get this epiphany that when it's time for my now 50-year-old husband to retire, it's going to be time for our daughters to go to college and somebody's got to pay that tab. And I mm. looked at him and I said, I got to get back to school. <laughs> and he said, yeah, well, that's the plan, but why are you rushing? I said, because I've, I've got to, I got to get in something that's going to allow us to educate our daughters. So I mm. went back to school in 71, finished my undergrad in 73 kept working for the state. And I said, you know, this money's not going to be college money. Mm. So we figured law school. Okay. And I started law school in 76, U of D law school, University of Detroit, mm. finished in, uh, passed the bar in 1980. Wow. And from there, David, I mean, the Lord was really helping us out because my career went on a trajectory that I I was so grateful for I I couldn't I couldn't believe it I got appointment from Frank Kelly the mm -hmm. attorney general governor James Blanchard mm -hmm. and um Alex Allen who was chief judge of 36th district court mm -hmm. and then John Engler the governor John Engler uh, appoints me to 36th District Court, a lifelong mm -hmm. Democrat. And then the Supreme Court in 2000 appoints me chief judge six times, 12 years, and I'm the longest serving chief judge 
of that court's history. <laughs> so that's wow. from that's from <laughs> foster care to running one of the largest courts in the country. Yeah. So it's like if I can do that, whatever challenges you have, you can overcome them. And uh, along with that, David, is having the right partner. Yeah. And I always tell young ladies and young men, you have to get, you have to have a partner who believes in your dream and you believe in their dream. You don't mm -hmm. walk in front of them. You don't walk behind them. You walk together. Wow. And this, it used to be uh, that, uh, you know, okay, I'll work and put you through college and then you work and put me through college. That's mm -hmm. the way it used to be. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's that way so much anymore, but you have yeah. to have a partner who is going to be supportive of what you need to do. Yeah. Teamwork makes great work. Yeah, it's so, this is such a rich conversation. Uh, so many places that I, I wanted to stop and, and kind of dig in a little bit. So let's go back to you decide to go into law. How old are you then? 30. When you make the decision. Okay, so you're 30 years old. Oh, oh to go into law, I'm I am yeah. uh, I'm 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 29. Okay. And then I, I finished law school at the age of 33. Okay. So my first question with that is why law? Why did you choose law at that time? Was that always something in the back of your mind or in your heart? Or was it something that uh they kind of they kind of developed over time uh it did not develop over time i was i was working for the state as i said and mm -hmm. i was introduced to the section of michigan employment security commission that lawyers worked in and they were mm -hmm. the, the pay was very very good and at that time you had to take civil service exams and then hope that there was mm -hmm. not that there was an opening in somewhere other than Ishpeming so that you could, you know, you could take the job. When I heard these lawyers talking about all you have to do is pass the bar and be a lawyer and you could be an MESC referee. So that was initially my goal. And I, I thought it would be a, a, a career where if I kept my nose clean, watched my P's and Q's, I would be able to transition into higher positions and make yeah. more money. Remember, the goal yeah. is to be able to pay for my kids' college education by 1985, yeah. Yeah. and I did. <laughs> and you did that, and as you said, uh, God kind of opens up all these doors you you put your head down, stay focused on what you want to do, and God opens all these doors and these opportunities come your way. Um, I'm amazed because tell me, take me into that time period, right? How many black women are walking the halls? You're walking in the position you're you're uh, serving in. There were three African American women in my class. Uh, there were some Hispanics and some um, 
what they call foreign born. And the majority of the class were, were white women and white men. Mm-hmm. It was just a handful of us. This is 1976. Yeah. There was just a handful of us. But we were there and we made it through. And I passed that bar on the first try. I, everything I, I did, I had to do for my for my family. It was four of mm-hmm. us, not just me. Mm-hmm, right. Let me. I, I want to go back for just a second. I don't. I maybe should wait for you to ask this question, but maybe you won't. In 1967, the Supreme Court struck down all of the laws that said interracial marriage was uh, a ban on interracial marriage was unconstitutional. My, I think it's significant because my daughter was born that year, that, that same summer that that, that uh, decision came out. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, is that the loving? Loving versus Virginia. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so that's, that's significant to your story in a few ways, right? You're married to, you're, you're in an interracial relationship, but you were born as a child from an interracial relationship as well Mm -hmm. and so you've experienced that on both sides and and bookends in your life talk to us about that how how have how has times changed since you were a child until now you know in terms of things that you've seen in that in that arena with race and the acceptance of interracial couples? Well, it was easy for me growing up because I was raised by two, a black man and a black woman. So my, my, you know, my, uh, I I was, I'm black. I Mm -hmm. I don't identify. I mean, if somebody asks about what I am, Mm. you know, or gee, you look something like something else. What are you? Or, or like my story? Okay, yeah. But but I am I'm a I'm a black woman, and mm. and I tell my kids sometimes, gee, it's a good thing your grandparents adopted me. I don't think I would have done well in an all white Italian setting. Wow. I, I, I'm too stubborn. I I I got too much. Mm. So, but what I have seen. Over, we had to have a conversation with our children because they're biracial, mm-hmm. and me being half Italian and, a, and an all-white father, you can imagine, you you know what my children look like. So yeah. I had to have a conversation with them, and about you know the listen, the wor- whole world is not going to be happy that you're here. Yeah. But you're going to have to find your own way. All our, my fa- all your father and I can do is give you instructions and give you all the love that we can possibly give you. But you're going to have to make your own way. And because they look like they look, they have been, I'll say, you know, misdiagnosed as as <laughs> not black, but mm-hmm. but they are, they mm-hmm. are, and 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 they and they live that way. What we're seeing I'm now and over the years since I got married, since the 60s, is you've got 300 million Americans identifying 
as multiracial. Yeah. You have all of these interracial couples with all of these interracial children from, you know, the people in the neighborhood to uh, basketball stars, uh, movie stars, football yeah. players, all kinds of folks. Yeah. I don't know what kind of conversation they are having with their children. I don't know, and I, I don't think that money makes a difference uh, in terms of the perception yeah. of who of who you are. You know, and there's one family out there, the father who's black says, you know, my kids are black. And the mother says, no, they're not. Well, they're <laughs> both. So what do yeah. you, yeah, yeah. you got to talk to, you have to talk to your children about who they are, where they came from, and they absolutely have to respect both sides of the fence. Yeah. You don't want to say, sometimes they won't say, well, I'm black because I leave out my white parent or I'm white, I leave out my black parent. So I think the, the word now is biracial or multi multiracial, I think is the word. Yeah. And even on the census documents, you don't, you can check a box that's got multi uh, meaning to it. You don't have to do yeah. black, white or Indian or Chinese. Yeah. It has more than that. I've seen it. It's exploding. It's the browning of America is here. Yeah. 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 Uh, so much there again. So part of that is the person themselves identifying themselves how they want to identify themselves. The other part of that is the way the world is going to choose to identify you. Correct. And we know that within this country, if you're black, you're black. You know, they treat you as such. If you if they perceive you to be black, then that's how they treat you. They treat you a certain right. way. Yeah. And so I I I'm I'm just uh I'm enamored by your story in that you were raised by black parents. And so perhaps some of the challenges that you would have faced being raised by your uh, biological parents. Um, and even some of the the mental makeup that would come from that experience doesn't happen to you. You know, you 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 you're you're centered in your blackness as a result of being adopted by black parents. Yes. I like yeah. the way you put that. That's you put it better than I could. Thank you very much. But uh, <laughs> I'm centered in my blackness. That's right. Yeah. So 29-year-old, 30-year-old uh, Marilyn is going off into this world of law. Not many Black women in that field. What, what, is, what are you feeling? What are you experiencing at that time, if you could recall? I just wanted to make it through law school, pass the bar, and, go to get, and get a good job so that I could bear the, the financial burden of, I won't say call it a burden, the financial responsibility of putting our children, daughters through school. And that's exactly the way it happened. He was 65. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I, through a, an appointment as the first African-American 
chairperson of the workers, Michigan Workers' Compensation Appeal Board, thanks to Governor, former Governor James Blanchard, that's, that money was very good. And I was able to put two daughters through University of Michigan. And remember, wow. they're a year apart. So, right. So one went through and then the, and then for three more years, two were there. And then mm -hmm. my youngest daughter was there by herself. Mm -hmm. So I had what? I had five years of that financial responsibility. And uh, and and my husband took care of the car there, you know, the car insurance mm -hmm. and all of that. And I took care of the room and board tuition and everything. And and it was. It was we did it. We did it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We did it together. He was Mr. Mom while I was taking classes at night at U of D Law School. He took care of the kids. Yeah. So I'm a young person, um, black person in this country, thinking about going into law. And you are able to matriculate law from this appointment. So you're in this appointment. What, with regards to law, are you responsible for? Kind of break it down for the common folk. If you were hurt, injured on the job, and you applied for workers' compensation, mm -hmm. and your employer said, "I'm not going to give it to you because I think you already had this problem, and I, and you're saying it's exacerbated by the work I'm having you do, and I don't believe that, so I'm not going to give you any uh, workers' comp." Mm -hmm. That person has a right to appeal. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, if workers' compensation was given to a worker the and, and the employer felt it was not deserved, the employer could appeal. Those appeals came to the appeal board, and we reviewed all the evidence and wrote the decisions. And when I was the chairperson, I oversaw 45 attorneys writing these decisions. Wow. And then after that, I went to 36th District Court as a magistrate and then mm -hmm. as a judge and then as chief judge. And of course, you know, that's criminal law and civil law. Yeah. And I absolutely loved it. It's called the People's Court. And there were 7,000 people a, a day coming into that courthouse. Yeah. Yeah. So the this position that you have with workers workers comp, this the things the work that you're doing there, are you gaining a skill set that assists you when you matriculate into magistrate and then off into the judge position? I was. Uh huh. I'm sorry. I yes, I was, and the way I was is because I was doing appeals, and what you have to do when you're doing an appeal is listen to this side listen to this side and put all of the evidence together and make a decision. And that's exactly what a magistrate and a judge does. Man. So yes, it did prepared me well for, for my judicial career. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to unpeel. So if somebody is, um, you know, again, aspiring to become a judge, they're African-American, they want to be a judge um what is what are some 
advice in terms of steps that you would would give them? Well, I would advise not doing it the way I did it with a husband, <laughs> two kids, two cats and a house. <laughs> but don't do it that way. And on top of that, it's very expensive to go to law school uh, now. You know, remember, I, yeah. I graduated in 1979. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it was a lot of money at that time, but it's it's a lot of money now. Uh, yeah. You've you got to get through high school. And uh, you have to do four years of college. And law schools are not real particular on what you majored in. Mine was psychology, and that was acceptable for uh, getting into law school. A lot of people do uh, political science, but you got you've got you got to buckle down, you got to study, and you got to get out of there with 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 good grades. Because after that, if you say, gee, okay, I graduated from college, now I want to go to law school, you've got the law school entrance exam that you have to pass. Mm -hmm. And that's what's sent. You send around to law schools. And just based on that, they say yay or nay. And if you don't have a score within their range, I was rejected by Detroit College of Law because my law school entrance exam uh, score was too low. Hmm. It wasn't too low for University of Detroit, however. And uh, I am a proud alumni of alumnus of U of D. It's U of D Mercy now. Hmm. And they are very proud of, of me. Hmm. But you gotta you got you have to study. And when you get in law school, you're, they're right that that first year is the most challenging. You I, you got to put everything aside and concentrate on that. And mm -hmm. then you have to take the bar when you're all finished with the with the classroom work and you have to pass it. Mm -hmm. And if you pass it, then you've got to pray mm -hmm. that you're going to get a job someplace, prosecutor's mm -hmm. office, defense firm whatever, you, you know, mm -hmm. whatever you want to civil rights attorney. And like I said, you, you do, do things in the community as well to show your connection. They just mm -hmm. don't want to see grades. They want to see what kind of a person is this? Is yeah. this a person who's not just interested in me, 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 but is interested in serving their community? Yeah. Awesome. 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 So I, I got, I think, two more uh, questions before we get out of here. The, the the next question, I think, is similar, but I'm going to put a twist to it. Knowing what you know now, if you can go back and talk to the 29-year-old Marilyn, what are some things you would tell her? You did everything right. Mm. And I'm proud of you. Mm. You did everything right. Yep. And I and I did. I'm proud of my career. I'm proud of my children. Uh, my husband and I, of course, you know, because of the 25-year age difference and the race difference, you know, we, we went through things. Mm -hmm. But we made decisions together. There was a bond of absolute commitment and love 
And sometimes when you have adversity at your door, it'll either it'll either strengthen the two of you or make you pull apart. And yeah. ours, everything that we went through brought us closer, closer together. And we yeah. never left, we never left um uh God out of our equation. I mean, he was yeah. a he was a priest, you know. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> and I grew up a Catholic girl, so mm. so prayer and Thanksgiving was always was always present. Mm. What would I tell her? Do the exact same thing <laughs> over again as you did the first time. I wouldn't change a thing, except I wish he had lived to see me yeah. become a judge. Yeah. But he did live to see both of his daughters that he wanted so bad graduate from the University of Michigan. And he wow. died three months after our youngest daughter graduated from University of Michigan. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's such a uh, dynamic story. It's a love story. It's a story about... Uh, race. It's a story about independence. It's a story about education, perseverance. You tapped into, you were saying, uh, walking together, not behind or in front. And what I thought about in that moment, I said it was juicy. It was so many things I could go where I could go. But, you know, the, the trust that's necessary to allow that dynamic to happen when you're with somebody to not try to forge ahead or for that person to not try to forge ahead, but for you to stay in sync side by side is a trust trust factor that you all had that I don't know that people are willing to allow themselves to be vulnerable enough to get right. Right. To get trust, you really have to be vulnerable enough to allow for that to, 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 uh, to, to develop. What do you think? <laughs> I agree. So there can't be any marriage at first sight. You have to get mm -hmm. to know mm -hmm. this person because the two of you are putting your lives in each other's hands and you're either going to walk this road together or or not. And uh you know, you we you, we have this saying now about about power couples. Well, um that's fine, but you have to respect, you have to respect each other. Yeah. One can be a racehorse and one can be a plow horse mm -hmm. and you find your niche, but you do it, you do it together and you do it for the sake of your family. And you never let anything come between, interfere with the love and the trust that you have for each other. I'm putting my life in your hands. You can put yours in mine and we will travel this road together. That's what yeah. marriage is supposed to be about, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, you know, and, and I'm going to ask my, my final question. It's just so much more. I can feel like I can ask you, especially with regards to, 36th district. So I do want to give you, you, you mentioned this earlier, but I think it's worth repeating. 
you were the longest serving chief judge in the history of Michigan's 36th District Court. And so I know you've seen all kinds of things and it's all kinds of ways we could go with that experience. Let's talk a little bit about that before I ask the last question. Tell us a little bit more about your experience as a judge in that seat. Just give, give the audience something about that experience that you had in that longstanding position. There are 31 judges, including myself. Uh, the Honorable Willie Lipscomb, he's deceased now, was my chief judge pro tem. Mm -hmm. And I always viewed my job as chief judge to make sure that all those judges had what they needed to do their job. And I was not just the administrator, but I was a working, I was a working judge. Anytime anybody had to take some time off for vacation or sickness, I would step in and fill in for them. Um, I, I was, I was at their service, not, vice versa. What do you need to be the very best judge you can, what you can be? There were 500 employees. What do you need for me to do for you to come here every single day and give your very best? And listen, the definition of a courthouse, it's not a happy place. You're <laughs> getting sued. You're getting put out. You got to sue somebody. You're going to jail. <laughs> so the employees had to be of a mindset that all of the people that come in there every day, eight hours a day, were in trouble. Or, you know, they had problems. Yeah. And what do you need to stay calm, to give good customer service? and to take care of the needs of these people. That's the way I saw it. And anytime you're a leader, you have to do what you are telling other people to do. So I tried, first of all, by example, and that is to get down on my, put, get my hands in the pot and, mm -hmm. and work a docket and work mm -hmm. cases. Mm -hmm. I was there to serve the court. And every decision you make as chief judge, the first question you have to answer, and the only question you have to ask is, is this the best decision for 36th District Court? And the mm -hmm. reason I did 12 years is because the Michigan Supreme Court, who was responsible for appointing chief judges, six times, 12 years, answered for me, that's what Marilyn At Judge Marilyn Atkins does. And the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's just an awesome story. Um plug your 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 memoir for us uh real quick. I was encouraged to write my memoir by my daughters. <laughs> and when people would hear my story, they say, gee, Marilyn, you should write a book. And I put it off and put it off. So I finally, my daughter said yes, and they're they're authors and publishers of their own company. Yeah. So I wrote it, and uh, and I wanted I designed the cover. Uh, it is it is I I you know listen you you got to tell the good with the bad, 
And that's yeah. what I did. Otherwise, people will think you're disingenuous because nobody's life is perfect. So this is me at six months old when I was adopted. This is my husband when he was a priest. And this is us with our two daughters as a family. And you'd be surprised when people see this cover, especially when they see that, and then they see, <laughs> wait, hold it, there's a priest. <laughs> wait a minute. What now he's got two little kids on his lap. Let me get this book and see what this is. And here's the <laughs> what is going on? And, and that's the reaction I want so that they they buy the book. We have the book in the hands of a screenwriter because yeah. now we are going to shop it as a movie the triumph yes. of rosemary and it's rosemary because that was my name at birth oh okay my name was rosemary lupo when i was born and my parents changed it to Marilyn. wow when they adopted so triumph is because i think i've triumphed over lots of things mm -hmm. and and, and it's Rosemary's mm -hmm. she started out behind the eight ball, as they say, and and met all the challenges and I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome uh, audience. Go pick that up, pick that book up and be on the lookout for the uh, film that's in the works of this wonderful story. We just uh, touched a little bit about it. Do you have your daughter's companies? Uh, where where can people find out about the uh, the work that your daughter does as well? Two Sisters Writing and Publishing is the name of their company. Yeah. And um, my book, by the way, can be purchased on Amazon. But it's Two Sisters Writing and Publishing. If you Google that, you will see all the things that uh, my daughters are daughters are doing. Now, Elizabeth is the one that is doing all the writing, book coaching and publishing. Catherine has gone into financial advising, but it's she's still part of the company, but Elizabeth is doing the work. I'm very, I'm very proud of them. Yeah. And I'm I'm uh put on camera. We love to have both of them come on dripping the black as well so put a good word in uh for us when thank we have you. an opportunity <laughs> thank you all right but i must get to the final question it's the most uh intriguing question that we ask each and every one of our guests uh you ready i'm ready <laughs> have you ever been on the cover of a magazine no I have not. Ah, okay. You've been on covers of books. You've been in the newspaper, but no magazine cover. Correct. All right. Well, one of the things that we do here on the Dripping in Black podcast is we place each and every one of our guests on our magazine cover. And so my executive producer is going to pull up your magazine cover <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> thank you all right and so if you look over my shoulder we have we have more guests than i have on my over my shoulder 
Um, but these are guests from our first and second seasons whose magazines covers we have uh, laminated and sent out to them. We will do the same for you as a parting gift. We will laminate that and send it to you at a later date as a big thank you for coming out to the Driven in Black podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I, I'm glad we met several weeks ago. It's an honor, really. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. The pleasure is all ours. So we want to thank uh, the Honorable Judge Marilyn E. Atkins for joining us. And we want to remind our audience that the DIBK Drip Shop is open. You can go there and find all kind of Dripping in Black merch from the original Dripping in Black tea to this latest thing that we have to celebrate us t-shirt that you see me donning today and lots of other other things go there and check that out when you have an opportunity um, and support dripping in black as we celebrate black excellence and as always a huge thanks to all of our listeners viewers supporters and subscribers and until next time be kind be loving and be excellent on purpose it is a choice up next on the Dripping in Black podcast, we speak to the multi-talented Yamashita Pains. Grind. Get ready. It's a new day. You have to grind. Every day should be a grind. Get up, get ready, get dressed. I believe you should look fabulous every day. Every day. Because I don't put give up on life clothes. I put Everything I put on has a jit to do. You know, got to have a jet that ain't do it. <laughs> you get up, you get dressed, you feel good. If you look good, you feel great. And that's yeah. a proven fact. When you get your hair cut, when you get your nails done, when you get, it makes you feel good. So yeah. every day should be that. And that's what I, yeah. that's what I do. I feel good okay. every day. <laughs> you have just experienced a Dripping in Black production. Enhance your business or brand by creating a podcast. A podcast can spread your product or expertise and passion to the world. A few benefits of podcasting are it builds a personal connection, increased traffic generation, and builds more brand authority. Dripping in Black Productions is equipped to manifest your vision to a viable tool for your business or brand. Anything from creating a sizzle reel or a full video audio production of your podcast, big or small, Dripping in Black Productions can support your needs. Contact us at www.dibkproductions.com for a free initial consultation. Synthesize thoughts and create masterpieces is the mantra of Dripping in Black Productions. And we don't stop.